Sick of pink it and shrink it? Us too. That's why we trust Isle Royal Outfitters as our source for women-exclusive hunting and fishing apparel. Their products are meticulously field-tested, incorporating new solutions to ensure all apparel is silent, scent-free, and designed specifically for women, so nothing stands in the way of your hunt. With a woman-first approach and exclusive camo prints, you can ensure these products will not only stand up to your time in the field, but can also be utilized in everyday life. Check out isleroyaloutfitters.com and use code ARTEMIS20 for 20% off your next purchase. That's isleroyaloutfitters.com and code ARTEMIS20. Hey everybody, welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host again this week. I am Marcia Brownlee and I am joined today by Becca Aceto. Hi Becca. Hi Marcia. It's been a been a second. It's been a second. I haven't talked to you since I pocket dialed you while I was scouting for deer. <laughs> I was honored that my name rose to the top of the pocket dial list. <laughs> right? I feel like it was like, you know who you haven't talked to in a while. <laughs> you haven't talked to Becca. It was it was good encouragement. Uh, and our guest today is someone our listeners know well, and I'm super excited to delve into this. Please welcome Jess Johnson. Hi, Jess. I'm so I'm so excited to uh, be chatting with you guys. And I think if my pocket dial actually pocket dialed, like if I had pockets that would fit my phone, it would huh. dial you too. <laughs> right. <laughs> I I get confused sometimes about pocket dials because I have a screen lock, so I don't quite know how my pocket gets past the screen lock but um, very dedicated pocket dial it knows the code it knows the code right that's what yeah it's either that or your face recognition needs to be updated I don't get (laughs) that's awesome I don't have face recognition set but I just pictured my face looking like a pocket which some days you know that's fantastic (laughs) um Jess how have you been well, I've been busy and uh, good and still recovering from about two weeks uh, out of country and a week on a film shoot, but it's uh, it's been a good fall so far. I Okay, side question. Um, what type of calendar system do you use? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have Google Calendar and it's, okay. it's just a rainbow of colors right now. But it's impressive. Um, yeah, so, so talk to us about this out of country trip. That's, that's what we're here for. Yeah. So I, uh, I just got back. I spent, uh, five and a half days in Budapest, Hungary, um, and outside of Budapest as well. And then followed that with four, five days in, um, the highlands of Scotland, um, sort of two separate, but also tied together trips. Um, so I was in Budapest actually, uh, on an invitation to present to the international journalism symposium for game and wildlife and the sustainable use of, uh, game and wildlife resources. Um, and then that was part of the general assembly for the international council for game and wildlife conservation, um, Lots of words. What I can tell you is that you can just call it the CIC. And it's a sort of politically independent advisory body, which uh, sort of aims to preserve wild game and hunting. Um, And it's through that it's like promoting the sustainable use of wildlife resources. So to put it sort of 
bluntly, it's an international organization that focuses on sort of the hunting voice in conservation um, with the like leading edge of sustainable use of wildlife resources, which is super cool and was really humbling to be a part of. Um, and my initial invitation was to give a presentation to the International Journalism Symposium, which is part of this General Assembly. And it's been part of it for about four years now. Um, the idea being that all of these good things can happen, but unless we have press in the room and talking and learning about what's going on, none of that communication goes outside. But you also have to give presentations to the press so they have something to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of my, my presentation that I gave a discussion on was nothing controversial at all, because I never, I never do that, but I gave a presentation on wolves in the northern rocky mountains <laughs> i see and, the sarcasm there <laughs> and uh sort of the theme of it was like how the wolf is a representation of the urban rural mindset and uh like they're that divide and sort of the outcome so gave a basic brief overview and and i focused mostly on the rocky mountains so greater yellowstone ecosystem basically with wolves, didn't touch on any of the Great Lakes or sort of West Coast, just focused solely on sort of the three states, four states that I know best, which is Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado, and uh, talked a lot about the politics and the policies and the sentiments around that. And um, it was really fascinating because there was like journalists in the room that did like a lot of work with like sharks and other stuff like that. And to have that discussion of like a predator, a terrestrial predator versus an aquatic predator and how they face the same stuff. And the more that I talked in this presentation and then the more that I spent like actually connecting with a lot of the general assembly of the CIC, the more I started to realize that the wolf is not just an issue in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem or in America alone. It is an issue worldwide. Yeah, say more about that, because I'm curious what the conversation was like in an international setting and kind of yeah. what, what some big takeaways were for you. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I started a lot of the talk uh, with the European sentiment of the wolf, because, I mean, even looking at like the Grimm brother fairy tales, you know, Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf or some of the other fairy tales like Three Little Piggies and the Big Bad Wolf. Mm -hmm. um, these all have origins in sort of European storytelling. And and in that era, it was necessary because it, it was an issue. You know, we didn't have quite the technology nor the safety that we have now that sort of exempts us from being a prey to wolves anymore and um you know it's much harder uh to keep your sheep safe uh then than it is now um just due to technology and everything else and so these stories developed um but i started basic basically i believe the i believe i blamed the american sentiment on the wolf on the europeans <laughs> <laughs> like you said you're not controversial it's okay <laughs> But uh, but that being said, you know, the Europeans and, and the old world has been uh, sort of seeing a comeback of the wolf and they're uh, a little bit further behind than us in policies. Um, I, I had this really kind of bizarre dawning where I realized that as I kept talking about what's been happening in the politics and like sort of the teeter totter of trying to find balance. Um, that Wyoming's seem to rise to the top as a really gold standard for wolf management, which frankly shocked the hell out of me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but as far as like sort of addressing, like being able to have wolves and still deal with sort of the rural mindset and, and the rural actual needs, uh, on the ground, uh, with predators, uh, I think there's a long way to go for Wyoming, but what I ended up talking with European wise was, you know, they're seeing this comeback of the wolf after having pretty much exterminated them in a lot of the areas of the old world and um they're coming back and it's a whole different landscape you know it looks really different from 200 300 400 years ago and there's a lot more people um there's a lot of people that aren't equipped to deal with like predators in a landscape especially in countries that haven't had a predator for half a century um and so the problems are much more ingrained and much older than what I think America is facing, but they're very representative of it. And I think because the American problems, like we've only been, you know, like maybe 40, 50 years solidly without like any wolves, you know, great grander. There's obviously, you know, a lot of nuance to that, but like, well, maybe more like a hundred when you look at like the extermination side, but um, we're, we're, our problems are young and they weren't as ingrained generally, generationally as ingrained still were, but not as ingrained as what, you know, sort of 500 years goes and looks like European wise. And so they're having talking about wolves coming into Italy um, and, and Italy not having a lot of policies to deal with them. They don't hunt them. They don't have great policy around mitigation and that. And so it's leaving sort of rural farmers and people that are even just like not even farmers, but just live in the countryside. Like wolves are coming in and eating domestic dogs. And, you know, it's actually becoming a problem. And it's really fascinating because we've had a smaller, less old sort of wrestling with the wolf in America. We're further ahead in dealing with it policy wise. Um, you know, by no means have we done it like perfectly, um, but we've got a lot of lessons I think that we can pass to the Europeans. And I sat and talked with the Portuguese delegation, um, long about that. And hopefully I'm putting them in contact with a few biologists in Wyoming to chat, um, as well as some folks from Denmark and Germany, um, and a gentleman from Italy, like it's just been a really fascinating conversations. But, you know, I went there as somebody, I got asked to do this uh, through Byron Pace and Tyler Sharp with Modern Huntsman. And they have a great connection with the CIC. And Byron and I have had long, speaking of pre-podcast notes, hmm. long pre-podcast discussions about uh, predator policy in America and sort of the ups and downs and the nuances of it and how it's never quite as black and white as the media seems to present it. And so when I went and gave this presentation, my goal of this presentation and my outcome was the story of empathy when dealing with the predator and the idea that the Earl Reuben, the Earl, oh boy, words, the rural urban divide <laughs> i was like who's earl i thought it was like this guy i didn't know <laughs> no 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 the rural urban divide in it's this, like the rural in this issue. <laughs> exactly clearly I, i've had plenty of sleep <laughs> but that the, the rural urban divide in this issue is is sprouted mainly from a lack of empathy and a lack of knowledge of what the other person is dealing with and where they're coming from and largely because of that, as the whole, the animal, the predator, the wolf loses out 
Um, and so it was really fascinating. It was really incredible. That was just one day of this general assembly, but it was also part, and this was the really cool part about being in Budapest. <clears throat> um, every 50 years, um, there is sort of a larger gathering uh, of, of all sort of the international and, and really pertinent wildlife conservation groups. And uh, this year was the 50th year. And so it wasn't just the International Council for Game and Wildlife General Assembly, but it was also the General Assembly for many others. And then they ended up holding something that they call the World Hunting Expo. <clears throat> and they held it in Budapest this year. And its whole theme was Rural Voices, Global Responsibilities. Hmm. And uh, talking about, so, so it was like not just this like meeting of minds of these international like folks who are helping dictate policies across the world about hunting, but it's also like hunting expos that had exhibitions on hunting in Poland or Namibia or, you know, Serbia or all of these different like large scale expo sort of style demonstrations. And it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a gear show. This was an information sharing show and they, they had like some of the largest organizations for European hunting dogs or Mongolian horse archery and falconry. And like, it was just an incredible thing to walk through. I feel like I spent four days with my jaw on the floor, just sort of trying to be a sponge and absorb it all. Mm -hmm. But, you know, th this thing was opened by the deputy prime minister of Hungary. It was attended by, by highly uh, sort of high up in their political world delegates. There was a lot of bodyguards walking around. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the General Assembly has delegations from a bunch of different countries that are sitting trying to uh, all work in the same direction. And, and I think there was like, my takeaway is that there was a refreshing part of it and a sort of depressing part of it. And like the depressing part was that like, realizing that like, we all like these problems aren't just American, they aren't just conservation based, you know, they're, they're global, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the wolf is like the perfect sort of just example, but it goes much larger than that, you know, whether it's, it's the voice that hunting is definitely needing a facelift, mm -hmm. um, or it's the, you know, the idea that everybody's wrestling with predators on the landscape and too many people and how do we navigate that or it's climate change or it's, you know, it's this thing that problems are universal and, and they are absolutely international and it is not this like silo of an American problem. Um, I was actually quite disappointed how few American people were there and how little the U.S. was part of this uh, sort of organization. Um, and then the refreshing part was that the same thing. We are all facing the same problems. And there is a lot of countries and people that have a lot of care and a lot of drive to fix this and to be part of the solution and to like think about change and to be willing to change, um, even in a really old organization. And, you know, it, it was, it was mostly old white guys, but they were passionate and willing to listen. And, you know, it's it's a problem that's pervasive across the hunting culture, uh, I can now say. 
uh, but they were super there and ready to listen and excited, I think, to have some new faces in the room. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty powerful experience. And that was five days in Budapest. And, you know, when we got there, they welcomed us with this incredible sort of tour of Budapest and they took us outside of Budapest up into a national park of theirs where they talked about their forest rehabilitation. We were met by the head of the forestry for Hungary and they were so passionate and so excited about the work that they were doing. It was just absolutely infectious. And uh, we went out and um, God, they just like, they took us around and just gave us this incredible introduction to Hungary to the point of where I was like, okay, now I have to come back to Hungary because this place is amazing. Uh, (laughs) But then I think my favorite part of it is that they understood that these were a bunch of people that really cared about like wildlife and they were hunters. And so at the end of the day, it was like late, sun had gone down, totally dark. They shut all of the lights off. A group of about maybe 20, 25 of us walked out into the middle of this sort of opening field around the forest and just sat and listened uh, because the red stag rut was on and you could hear red stags roaring around us. And it was so amazing. It was like, I mean, like how often does a sort of a very diplomatic welcoming committee get to go do something like that? That felt really like they read the room, they knew they knew how to show off the best parts of their country for who was there. And um, it was pretty profound. I have a million and one questions. And the first <laughs> one is, can you describe the Red Stag grunt? Oh, God. <laughs> I won't ask you to do it. But if you could just like describe it a little bit. Um, God, I don't, this is going to, it's going to sound like a really up description but (laughs) it's it's such a haunting it's a roar is what it's called so it's not okay in a lot and and I think ecologically the red stag occupies the same place as the elk does here uh in the U.S. and so they're they're bigger they have a lot of resonance and it's a roar but it's kind of like god I would almost put it down to like sort of how a bullfrog sounds but like with the cadence of an elk bugle oh wow and it's this really deep resonating um you know frankly you could probably play it and say that somebody has really bad digestion issues which is a less nice way to talk about it um but it's the resonance (laughs) that comes with it in person that I think was actually like pretty powerful you know it's same with an elk bugle where you can't quite describe what it is to a human like they can hear it and they can hear it on YouTube and everything, but it doesn't quite transfer to what it feels like to be out in a space, you know, in the dark and clo- in close quarters with these animals and hear that sound. It's, it's, it hits you in the sternum. It's pretty powerful. Mm. It sounds amazing. Um, so, so now I'm down to a million questions. And I'm curious. So you already, I was curious what the um, United States representation was at the CIC. Uh, And I would still be curious into digging that into a little bit more deeply about specific organization representation. Um, But I'm also curious about the bigger global, like how prevalent were um, like South American or African or Indian or Asian countries? You mentioned Mongolia, but how how far outside of Europe is it really um, engaged? 
there's heavy African representation. Um, and I think partly due to a lot of European colonization in the past. Um, so drawing that connection, um, a lot of this feels more European based. Um, however, there is like US representation. I think Shane Mahoney actually has some connection to the CIC. He was not there this year, uh, but, I, but I'm fairly certain he does. Um, I was, you know, looking at the CIC and, and some of, I think, my takeaway uh, that's actually fairly profound one for me is that we as Americans are extremely arrogant about our North American model. Really? (laughs) Extremely. (laughs) And we talk about it as this like gold standard where it, when it, when it has like some fairly deep flaws and it has this desperate need to be updated and, and this sort of be brought into the now here and now, which I'm not saying other cultures don't also have that, but we have this like arrogance where we're like, our way is the best way. And these European countries have just hunting and excuse me for saying that word, but like, it just, it's, we have this arrogance and having gone and then deep dove and, and I guess we'll follow up this later is I then spent like four or five days in Scotland with a woman who is deeply into Scottish conservation and red deer work and and works on a very different system than what we do here in America. And I walked away feeling like maybe the most damaging thing we could do is be insulatory with our conservation approach and wishing that we had more people in the room listening to how other countries are dealing with problems where we could maybe we could add to the conversation, but we could also take away from the conversation and and sort of exchange ideas if if we could like get over our arrogance that like we have this like perfect structure because we don't. And it it that was like a takeaway where like wanting to come away and be like, okay, how do we how do we go back to the drawing board? How do we start forging some international connections and start talking about this? So we're not just solving conservation issues within a silo of America, but we're looking at this on a global approach. And it's kind of a scary thing to like consider. Um, but but there was some really fascinating, you know, like Scotland, for instance, they sell their game meat in grocery stores and it directly goes against our, you know, sort of market hunting uh, fear here in America, but it's given the red stag an incredible value there. And while I don't think it's good for all species, it might be something good for the whitetail, <laughs> you know, and, and it just, it's such a, you know, controversial way to like talk about it and look at it, but it's just the idea of being willing to see other, other solutions and other, other scenarios. And I feel like that had the U S had more people involved, um, I feel like maybe we could have benefited from it if not also brought ideas to the table. Cause I, there's maybe, I think three, three people in my whole, maybe four people in my whole time there that were from the U S mm-hmm. out of hundreds. Mm-hmm. And Jess, I'm assuming, well, I don't know if you mentioned this, but were those other United States folks, were they actually wildlife managers or, cause I'm just picturing like, you know, the Idaho Department of Fish and Game where I live is a state run agency. And so sending somebody to Europe, um, I just imagine wouldn't be something that they would do. So how to get actual wildlife managers more looped into this and start to think differently about what they're doing and maybe have a little bit less 
um, just fewer restrictions on what they can and can't do. Yeah, so I mean, some of the people that we saw there, uh, let's see, Sean McClelland gave a presentation and he was the executive director of Outdoors Tomorrow Foundation. Um, let me see what other, I have to pull through the program really quick because I can't remember all of the U.S. names. Um, there was uh, Nate Watson from the Dallas Safari Club uh, was there as well. Uh, I think those are the two that stuck. Oh, uh, and then Ronald J. Reagan from Executive Director of Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies oh, that's was good. there. Yeah, and he gave a mm -hmm. talk. They had yeah. a session, uh, a thematic session on culture of the countryside, and he gave a talk uh, in, during that. Um, and then I know that uh, Shane Mahoney was part of a uh, discussion where they had kind of like the, it's called CPW, but it's like the biologist section of all of this. And uh, there was a lot of folks, a lot of folks that were either naturalists or biologists giving discussions on some of their research. I was really wishing um, Dr. Kevin Monteith or one of his, the amazing women in his shop was there to give a give a talk. Um, and I, yeah, I definitely yeah. put his put his name in the uh, in the hopper for them for the next time that they do this. Um, but yeah, I think I think Shane Mahoney was the only American. Well, he's not even American, North American. <laughs> uh, that was part of that. Um, so yeah, it was very is interesting because there was I'm sure there were more there that I'm missing. Um, but just as far as those that were actually giving presentations and talking, it was just two. Mm -hmm. Um, so you mentioned, uh, I, uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> can we, let's do five more podcasts. I have a lot of questions, but you mentioned, um, that they talked about, um, uh, rural environments and, and wildlife and, and climate change and its impact on hunting. I'm curious what the conversation around the wildlife crisis was from a global perspective. So they didn't explicitly talk. They didn't have a thematic session on uh, climate change. They did a lot of their thematic sessions actually, you know, aptly because like we have COVID, they focus actually on zoonotic diseases, okay. um, which I do think have like a tangent that touches climate change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, As does everything. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, but they had great sort of discussions with biologists about, uh, you know, sort of what a zoonotic or a zoonosis is and um, what COVID is and what it is not and whether they're talking about. And, and it was funny because they talked a lot about like sort of COVID not being a zoonotic disease. It's just that the animal is a vector. Um, uh but but things like whether it's you know chronic wasting disease or or other such things and it was a really fascinating um presentation that they gave around that they also let's see they had a lot of biodiversity talk which i thought was really interesting you know talking about the strength in biodiversity and again i think that also is tangentially touching climate change um it was really it's i'm always amazed at the ability for hunting organizations uh, to talk very deeply about climate change without actually saying the word huh. climate change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, um, Becca, what's on your mind? 
oh, I just hear all this and I'm like, how do we get more people talking together? Um, that's like a constant theme, like every job I've ever had in conservation. Mm-hmm. But um, how do we get out of our own silos and have these conversations uh, when we take all this back home with us? How do we just continue this conversation like this podcast getting getting information out to people who are listening and who are interested in the same thing and um thinking bigger about how the future can look instead of you know sticking with the same voices and the same ideas um and, and I so, will say Marcia it sounds like you have a million questions so feel free to chime uh, in behind me well I do, <laughs> I do have a, a quick takeaway that this is probably the perfect place to put it is that the International Council for Game and Wildlife Conservation the CIC has an Artemis yep and they call it Artemis yep and it's uh it's I mean, I remember when I heard about this a couple of years ago, just as Artemis was forming, uh, I think Mary Zeiss Stang uh, was sitting as the U.S. delegate on Artemis. Um, and she was like, oh, my gosh, are you guys the same thing? And I was like, what? There's another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to meet the woman that heads it up. She's phenomenal. She actually just wrote a cookbook for the CIC that'll come out in around the Christmas time. So it's like it's like venison and wild game recipes from around the world it's fascinating i got to see a copy of it um but anyways there is an artemis and i chatted a lot with her and and marcia you and i hopefully will be talking uh off podcast business-like about it because they are very interested in seeing how we can work together and where we can sort of pull forward at the same time Mm um and and I don't know where that will go, but the interest is there. So maybe there's some of that where it's it's not just like coming back and sharing the stories, but but being willing to go back and be like, all right, let's work together now. Mm-hmm. What's next? Well, I, I guess I, <laughs> let me go back for I had one question about the whole 50 year every 50 years, because that's like Haley's Comet passing through the sky. That feels like a really <laughs> long time. Um, and. I think it's fascinating. Do you know anything behind why 50 years? I think it's more of like the planning that goes into getting international attendance to something likely takes about you got 50 50 years years to work together the funding. (laughs) (laughs) You got 50 years to reserve the rooms. Yeah, it's funny. I I don't know if that's actually the case. What I do know is that that um, having it once every 50 years made it like a pretty profoundly special thing to be a part of, and and it was a very big, it was a very big pull for the country of Hungary, and they they pulled out all stops that they could have for it, especially considering the world having gone through COVID and everybody wondering about travel and, um, you know, it's been a bumpy road and for as bumpy as it was, I think they did an exceptional job in hosting it. Yeah. Also Hungary happens to be the highly, the most highly vaccinated country right now. So it's really nice to be in a country. I think it's like over 80% of their population is vaccinated, which was mm-hmm. great. It's so interesting. I guess like having it every 50 years, like you're definitely going to be able to address something that's that's relevant to the now, right? Like talking about rural issues across the globe 50 years ago would be an entirely different conversation than it is now. Uh, and so I do think that probably makes each session incredibly relevant to the time that we're in. 
Very much so. <laughs> so fascinating. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so like what, what's next as far as, uh, what you envision for yourself being engaged in CIC? I, boy, I have no idea. Um, I think discussions with, with the CIC's Artemis, um, I, I mean, if, if there's nothing else that I observed coming away from that is that the CIC and Artemis have a desire to want to sort of change with the times, but are maybe a little slow on the uptick on that and are, are maybe needing some, um, younger voices and a few more female voices and diverse voices. Uh, and so seeing wherever, wherever I can help in that regard, but also in the aspect of like, in my work in politics, in my work in legislature, um, the idea of maybe, you know, and, and Becca, when you were working with Idaho Wildlife Federation, you, you and I chatted a lot about how you'd see a bill in Montana or Wyoming and you'd then see it again in Idaho and vice versa. And it would, all, you know, how they share ideas, whether they're bad ideas or good ideas, they certainly share them. And this idea of that, you know, as we're wrestling with things like the wolf and the grizzly bear and, you know, habitat destruction and rebuilding and reforestation or deforestation, all of these things that we're wrestling with, um, maybe reaching across the pond from new world to old world uh, politically is also probably helpful. Um, even though they have different political systems that, you know, some of the ideas that pop up that I've heard about in the Scottish parliament um, are very reflective of some of the things I hear out of say California state legislature. Um, and so that idea of um, trying to make sure that the relationships that I built there uh, are kept up and and fostered and and grown um, so that we're actually sharing these thoughts outside of just our little our little country, giant country, frankly. <laughs> Hungary is about the size of Wyoming, so <laughs> you felt right at home. Um, oh, it's fascinating. Thank you. Um, and I have a million other. Well, one hundred ninety nine thousand. <laughs> Nine hundred ninety nine other questions, but uh, I want to talk about your hut in Scotland. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, so uh, to lead into this again, we go back to modern huntsmen. Thank goodness for them, um, Byron Pace and Tyler Sharp. Uh, Byron, being in Scotland, being from Scotland, um, and and the podcast he hosts has a friendship with Lindsay Sievert, um, and she is sort of a uh, Red Deer Working Group manager and and pretty high up in a lot of the Red Deer work in um, in Scotland and has a long history of trying to get people to work together uh, for the good of the deer. Um, she's a professional uh, sort of puzzle piece put together person, as she says says she's a net, she's a really phenomenal networker and she can get people from very disparaging backgrounds to work together. Yes. Um, and so she had actually sat on a podcast with Byron Pace on his Into the Wilderness podcast. I highly recommend you listen to Lindsay's uh, Lindsay's episode. It's really fascinating. Um, and Byron basically was like, oh my gosh, here's a woman that loves hunting that's really nerdy and passionate about deer you should meet my other friend who lives in America, who's a passionate hunter and is really nerdy about deer. Yep. 
Um, and lo and behold, Lindsay uh, was another presenter for the International Journalism Symposium, and she gave a talk on how the red deer in Scotland is uh, sort of indicative of the urban and rural voice there, because um, they're dealing with a very similar divide. Um, Scotland has no non-two-legged predators. Um, so they have no wait, wolf, wait. no has no non-two-legged predators. So we're the two-legged predators. I'm with you. Okay. Yep, yep. <laughs> I was going to say no natural predator, but humans are a natural predator for red deer. Yep. Uh, so, so what I would say is like all of the predators that are non-human in Scotland are not big enough to be a predator of the red deer. So they have like a fox and badgers and other things like that, but they don't have anything that can kill a red deer. Um, and so they're dealing with a very different conservation issue. Um, where red deer are so prolific, they're actually incredibly damaging because about 500 years ago, Scotland decided it was going to cut down all of its trees and just change the landscape forever. Now they're trying to reforest this, but reforesting it with an abundance of wildlife that likes to eat trees mm -hmm. <laughs> is really hard. So mm -hmm. it's a major conservation issue and, and they do cull hunts and they you know, have a long hunting tradition, but just like in America, hunting is a somewhat sticky subject in the urban parts of Scotland because people are very separate from it now. And so it's this major thing that they're wrestling with and they have mostly private land. There's some public land, but it's it's mostly all large estates. And so it's getting all of these large estates that all have the allowance to manage their land as they see fit to work together to find a somewhat cohesive management program um, across the country for red stag. And, and that can be really difficult when you have one estate that just wants to do conservation work and grow forests and work on rewilding, um, which is a major sort of theme for them. And then you have other estates that are really steeped in the red deer hunting and stalking. They call it stalking, not hunting tradition. Um, and they're wanting bigger deer, more deer, better deer, which is, just, you know, and they are neighbors to the people that are trying to just grow forests and there's not major fencing. And it's just a lot of like moving pieces that they're facing. So Lindsay gave this talk, which was great because we were able to, we flew, flew in at the, around the same time into Budapest. We got to spend five days in Budapest together, totally fangirling over each other. It was hilarious. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Byron uh, had set up that um, my plane ticket, rather than just flying back to America, was going to make a four and a half, five day pit stop in Edinburgh, Scotland. Just a little um, layover. Just it's a good. little layover. Um, he, he said it was his uh, apology for making me give up the Grand Teton goat hunt to come to Hungary. And I was like, wow. That seems fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, okay, that was really a choice I had. <laughs> awesome. um, but we, so we got to spend Budapest together, which was really, it was really great to then have somebody to like somewhat brief Budapest with. But, uh, Lindsay, because of her job and her expertise, and her husband is actually a professional stalker, so he manages some estates and sort of hunts on them and, and takes people out like that. He is a hunter, and she's also deeply involved with um, a lot of the other stalking community and, in Scotland, and she was like, oh, like if we're going to be in Scotland, like let's go do like a red stag hunt. We'll set it all up. Lindsay is an incredible 
giving host. It was so phenomenal. And her husband, Tom, I just can't thank them enough for the kind of experience I got. But we flew into Edinburgh and we didn't get to Forest, Scotland, where they uh, where their house is. And they put me up in their place and everything. And we didn't get there till 1.30 in the morning mm. in Scotland. And we turned around, got up at 4 a.m. and went out and met Roddy McCaskill, who is one of the favorite humans I've met in a very long time, um, who is a government hired, like, red stag and roe deer color. So his job is to go out and cull these animals. And, you know, whether it's hinds, they call stag and hind, not cow and bull. Um, whether it's hinds or whether it's the sort of older stags that you need to pull from the population or the ones that are not as good genetics and stuff like that. Um, it was, that's his job. And he has a fairly controversial reputation, um, because sort of the animal rights side of Scotland just thinks he's this horrible human that goes out and murders a bunch of deer. And then the professional stalkers who have this really steeped in tradition, they want more deer around also sort of have some consternation with what he does, uh, because he's going out and shooting all of the deer. Um, and so it's one of those things where like I got to meet a human that has a very difficult job with a lot of sort of sticky reputation around it. And he was just one of the most incredible people. He's he, I've never met a human that can like track. And I mean, literally the, the fact they call it stalking is because hunting red deer is not this like, you know, crazy, you know, burner all engines on high elk hunt, burn a lot of ground kind of fast moving thing. It's fairly open country with a lot of deer on it. You have to move really slow. And if you bump one, you bump all of them. And Roddy was just like, we would be like on one side of the hill and he'd be like, we have to go around. There's a hind and a, a hind and a calf on the other side. And I'd be like, how do you know that? He's like, oh, I smell them. And I was wow. like, oh my God, like this person's been doing this for 40 years. Like he, he was so it was being out with a true predator. It was incredible. But he was also just not only just knowledgeable, but like willing to like share it and put up with my 12 billion questions. And, um, you know, he was he would, you know, be like, walk behind me over here. You no, know, like go on the side. And, and you know, on the first day we had a, a stag right out of the gate come in and it was huge. And I like he had like the gun help me get the gun set up and everything. And we belly crawled in like a hundred yards through like Scottish moor and muck and uh, heather and up this like sort of big highland knoll. And this red deer, red stag came in and I literally like I'd never seen one in person. And Roddy was like, you can shoot it if you want. And I was just like, I can't. Mm -hmm. I don't. I've never seen this in person before. I just I think I need to look at it. Mm -hmm. um, and then we got a couple of more chances at red stags. And, you know, was, the morning was sort of drag, not dragging on. It was, I was like, it wrapped attention. And I, the other funny part is that Roddy McCaskill, if his name doesn't give away, is like a true caricature of the Highlands. And I think I only understood about maybe 50% of what he would say to me, <laughs> even though it was in English. Because <laughs> he'd turn around and he'd say something and I'd be like, there's no way that was an English word. And I'd like look at Lindsay and Lindsay would like kind of translate, but I'd be like, what? 
okay. Um, but he was like, let me paint you the picture of this man. He was in full tweeds. So like wool tweeds with like gaiters on. And he had not a spotting scope, but it's like a telescope that these traditional Scottish stalkers use. He has a stalking cane, um, which is reminiscent of the sheep herder's cane that is a carved sheep's horn with a carved Scottish thistle on it. He had this the sort of ear flap hat that is tied up on top, but it was like clear that this these were used clothing. Like this is what he hunts in. This is how he does it. Um, and it was, I mean, I, I think I was just like walking around like, am I in a movie? Like what is going on? Um, and finally, so we, we got up there and we'd had it, we'd seen enough like red stags coming in, not had a great chance at any of them. And then we had this like little youngster of a red stag that was like right along sort of a little uh, drainage, a glen bottom for us. And it was roaring. And the, the mist is starting to roll in, like heavy mist. And we're up sitting on this sort of high Scottish knoll in heather, surrounded by this beautiful place where like maybe 30 miles to our east is the Isle of Skye and the ocean. And it's just this phenomenal, like incredible world that we're in. And this little stag is like, and if you've ever heard like a, a young elk bugle where it's like, it's like a bugle, but it's, it's trying so hard and it has like the voice breaking of a teenager. And, yep. um, this little stag was like just roaring and trying so hard. And Rodney was like, it's a young one, but he's coming in. And if you want him, you can take him. And I was just like, not going to be, I was like, I don't need to like walk home with a trophy. Like, this is like, this is so cool to be here and hunt these things. These are animals that are going to be called. I get to see the back end of this, the conservation side of it, not just like the traditional, like uh, performance of the hunt. Um, so I felt very lucky in that. And so I was like setting up and we were just watching this little, this little stag and he just hangs up and will not come any closer and looking sort of over on this glen of trees. And then we realize about a couple seconds later, the biggest roar we've heard all morning um, out of like six or seven different stags just rips through this mist. And you were just like, whoa, that was not the little one. Um, and Roddy's like, oh, like those big ones very rarely leave their hinds. Like they're, he's like, let's get him talking. And the other thing is that Roddy is making this sound with his mouth. He doesn't have a professional call or anything like that. He was actually doing this like with his mouth. It was so cool. Um, there's no way I can recreate it. I do not have a low enough register to do that, but it was fascinating to watch Roddy do it. Um, and this uh, stag we were sort of looking down at a group of hinds and I like immediately looked down because this just behemoth of an animal walked out of the trees and came in just roaring his face off. And I was looking through the scope of the gun going like, Oh my God, this is such a cool animal. And his body was huge and came in and um, Roddy was just sort of talking me through it. He's like, we don't take long shots here. Um, let's get him in as close as we can. And whenever you're comfortable, I'll tell you like, when's a good time to shoot. And I was like, that's awesome that you guys don't take long shots here. <laughs> I'm like happy to wait and sat and waited and got a really good, about 150 yard shot, um, on him and hit him right where we wanted to. And, uh, 
he went down immediately. Um, and Roddy just turned around. And he looked at me. He was like, holy cow. And I was like, what? And he was like, that's a huge stag. Mm. <laughs> um, and the coolest thing about this is that the way that the colors and the stalkers talk about stags is they are not talking about an antler when they say it's huge. They are talking about body size. Um, and I think if I understand correctly, most stags average in like 15 to 17 stone with the head off and sort of hang, hanging on the meat hook. That's how they're like talking about it. 15 to 17 stone. And the stag that Roddy and I uh, shot was 19. Wow. <laughs> um, but he's this, he has what they call switchy top, which is like, he's old and he's doesn't have the palmation of antlers, like the sort of Google photos of red stag have. He's got sort of a single big, long poke with a couple splits. Um, and Roddy, as we went up there, he, he teaching is called grelicking and it's how they process stags in the field. So because Scotland sells red stag meat in stores and that you can buy and sell your meat to uh, uh, wild game butchers. Um, they have a very, very specific way that they want you to handle meat. And so much so that they've like provided deep sets of literature to stalkers about good meat handling and, and safety and how they want this done. And so what they end up doing is they growlic, which is our the American version of gutting. And then they, and they bleed them. Um, and then they load them whole and they either figure out how to drag them to where you can load them whole or they bring an Argo in, which is kind of a six wheeler sort of contraption, which goes in amazing places. Um, I saw one and run one in Canada as well as uh, in Scotland. But then the other thing is that they still traditionally use ponies and they have a special saddle that's an old traditional style where they are able to pull the whole stag gutted and bled up onto a very stocky little built for this Highland pony and walk them out. Like that's how they've been doing this for centuries. Um, so they have this sort of down to a fine art. We had an Argo, we didn't have ponies. Um, it's the only disappointment of the whole trip. <laughs> uh, but, but got him back. And um, meanwhile, there's also Sika stag in these areas and Roddy was going out and we were gonna call and just see if we could get a Sika in. And um, I pulled out an elk call uh, and I don't think Roddy had ever heard that. Not only that sound, Sika mm -hmm. sounds like an elk call if an elk had done helium. It's just <laughs> a high, it's a much higher little bugle, but you can reproduce that with like, I had like a Phelps game call in my mouth and just reproduced it. And Roddy turned around and was like, I want one of those. What's that? Nice. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, so one of, the, I think my favorite parts of this whole, whole day, um, was was on the walk back to the to the, sort of the truck after we'd sort of processed the deer and we were going to go figure out how to get him the like 2.5 miles back to the truck um and and Roddy and I were talking and, and we're sort of hunting back to the truck looking for Sika looking for for more red deer um because we were essentially looking like his job is to call so if another red deer were to come up like we would have taken it um and so we were talking about this and, and Roddy and I was just talking about how special it was. And this was so profound. And he was like, I really like taking people like you out. Um, Cause some people don't care at all. They just want 
the big antlers. And he's like, somebody that understands what's going on here is really special. He's like, I don't like shooting deer anymore. He's like shot a lot of them. And, and this is a person who does it for his job. And, you know, I was kind of questioning like why, and he's like, well, it's just like, there's always that pang of sadness. Like, even if it's your job and you've done it thousands upon thousands of times, it doesn't get any easier. In fact, it gets harder. And he really liked, I think he expressed this like where he was excited to take me out because it was somebody that had never seen this animal that was experiencing it for the first time. Um, and his like moment of vulnerability. And I, I can't tell you, like, this is a gruff old Scotsman who is like blunt and crass and like, to have that moment of vulnerability and like turn around and tell me about that. And I, that was super profound. Cause I was like, if only the people that are m sort of misaligning this gentleman, because they're doing something they don't agree with, but he's doing it with so much care and so much professionalism. Um, I mean, if you're going to hire somebody to be, do a cull, that's the person you want doing it. He cares. He knows more about this animal than anybody that, has excessive feelings on either side, I would imagine. Um, and I think like the, you know, following up on the gruff part, like Roddy, uh, as we were growlicking this stag, he uh, dipped his hands, sort of grabbed his hands around the heart and pulled his bloody hands out and just wiped them on my face, huh. uh, which is this tradition that they have called blooding. And, and he was like, like, now you're here, now you're part of this place. And that was like all he said. And I was like, you know, why did I like, what just happened? Um, but it was, it, it was such a profound experience to have that and, and to have Lindsay there and Tom there and, and to have them share someone like Roddy with me, who is, who is really controversial in Scotland among all communities, um, felt like a really special experience to have. Um, and that was just day one. <laughs> <laughs> day um, two I got to go out with Tom looking for roe deer and and Tom is managing a couple different estates uh, or, or managing the hunting on a couple of different estates and this one was much closer to Forest Scotland um, which is sort of more east coasty side not west coast where we were hunting the day before and we were in this place that has a lot of roe deer and I was just sort of job shadowing him. He was going out and, you know, uh, there was a red deer hind that we saw and he was like, well, sometimes red deer come into this area, but I've never heard stags down here. And we got out there and it was like sort of last light. Um, and we were walking through this just absolutely beautiful sort of forest and open meadow area. And like we hear a roar. And Tom turns to me, he's like, in all my time here, I've never heard a red stag roar in this place. And I was like, what? It's like, yeah. Um, he's like, let's just keep walking. Well, if we see a roe deer, like we'll 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 hunt a roe deer, but let's just keep sort of walking in this direction and um walk up into this direction. And boy, an hour or two later, this and and again, the knowledge of landscape was incredible. Tom was like, Oh, that roar is up in this clump of trees about three miles away, or it's amazing how this like sound traveled. Um, and so we went there and it was like last light. We had three roe deer. We had a roe deer doe and two fawns that were like sort of running and moving quickly and somewhat frolicking through this opening meadow. And they came within 10 feet of us, just like running at full speed. 10, and they're tiny. They're like German shepherd sized deer, like, but deer 
like not German Shepherd bulky, <laughs> just like mm-hmm. that height. They're tiny. Um, and that was that was like I was like, okay, day made. Like I've seen a red deer or a roe deer up close. This was incredible. And then like 12 minutes later, a red stag pops out of like this glen sort of up a up above us, maybe 70 or so yards in front of us. And he is just roaring his face off. And he's like big bodied and like beautiful. And Tom like put shooting sticks up and he's like, we have to take this. Um, and, and he's like, do you want to do it? And I was like, like really (laughs) um okay uh and had this like red stag in the scope that was just like one of the most like this one I was able to watch a little longer and he was closer and he was like stopping at a wallow and sort of I mean just it was complete elk behavior but in the setting of highlands of Scotland it was incredible um and he I I the thing, the image is burned into my memory as he turns towards us and he opens his jaws and just roars this huge sound. Um, and, and there's like plumes of steam coming out of his mouth and it's sort of like somewhat wet, Scottish, eerie, cool fairy tale weather in a fairy tale place with like little mushrooms everywhere and bracken and heather and it was, I was just like, this is unreal. This is a Nat Geo article. Um, and, and had a very good shot and was able to take a second stag. Um, and we, we processed both of these stags and, and they are, they got, because I'm not allowed to take meat out of Scotland, um, the U S bans it because of a possibility of hoof and mouth disease. Um, I was able, we were able to, and obviously Lindsay and Tom sold it to Scotland to be processed and put into grocery stores. Um, and I am working on figuring out how to get the uh, sort of Euro mounts, the step, the heads home, which is a whole other level and learning about customs and border issues. Uh, but it was like one of those things where I've never been on a hunt where I didn't get to like process the meat and it was very it was incredibly conflicting and it kept going back to this idea of of um you know that we are the predator on that landscape for conservation reasons and that if people are not hunting red stag and red deer and roe deer um they are growing so big that they are actually having a ecological disaster in scotland because of it um and it was a very different, like it was a true, like I was part of this hunt for conservation purposes, period. And it was it was one of the more sort of conflicting, but also amazing experiences to have, especially with such in-depth and incredible people. And, and then day three, uh, Lindsay took me around to all of these places that have like, um, we went to Glenfeshi, which is a estate a little south of Inverness. Um, near the Cairn, I think it's, what is it called? Cairngorms National Park. Um, and it's these estates that are managing really, really hard. They're, um, it, Glen Feshi was incredibly controversial because they, try, they did a major eradication of their deer 
And what they're trying to do is bring back forests that are more natural and not just one age class. And so to do that, that means keeping the deer population down on these lands to like one or two deer per kilometer, not like 15 to 30, how a lot of these estates run. So it was very controversial. They like went in with helicopters and just, you know, fully culled. Um, but what's happening on this place is this incredible sort of somewhat rewilding of a very damaged landscape and is coming back in very natural sort of ways where you have different age classes, different kinds of trees. They're working, the, the gentleman that we sat with, Tom, um, another Tom, <laughs> uh, has this long history and just this dedication to making this place as good as it can be. And they're, they're looking at um, you know, there's a lot of people that don't want to hunt there because you have to really work for it because there's so few red deer, left, but they still hold hunts. And then there's like the people where, um, that are just wanting to get out of the city and to see it. So it's, it's, it's a really fascinating little tidbit of conservation history in Scotland. Um, and then we also met with, uh, Pete who I'm going to forget his last name because I don't have his book in front of me right now. But he is this incredible communicator that does a lot in the sort of BBC arena to talk about predators in Scotland. And, and there's some folks that are that are having a discussion like, do they want to bring back the bobcat to Scotland or the lynx? I mean, um, the Scottish lynx. And it's, again, incredibly controversial. Um, and then there's the rumblings of like, do they want to introduce a wolf there? And it's just what the third sort of third and last day that we really spent um, fully in Scotland was spent going around and being able to meet with all of these conservation professionals and and dyed in the wool land managers that were all trying different things and working really really hard within their own respects to bring Scotland back to a place of ecological balance um, and you know, it was so refreshing to see something that was incredibly controversial in Scottish, like in Scottish history and in Scottish structure, but to have a very outsider's point of view and not have any of like an emotional investment one way or the other. And to be able to listen to that and be like, you know, sort of pick and choose how I was feeling about it was pretty, pretty cool. So all in all, like Lindsay and her connections there and, and Roddy McCaskill and Lindsay's husband, Tom, just it. I felt like I got this beautiful insight to Scotland and, um, you know, I would encourage anybody that like, you know, I'm the international hunting side of stuff is pretty uh, controversial. I think even within the hunting community and having gone and learned from folks like that and walked, walking away with a, such a deeper knowledge of a different place um, that I wouldn't have gotten had I not been hunting there. Um, is giving me a lot of, a lot to think about, about traveling to hunt, to learn landscapes more so we can be better at protecting them on a global scale. Wow. That's, it sounds like an amazing trip and, and I appreciate the, your, your capacity for storytelling. <laughs> Is, uh, to be fair, and for all of you listening, this is the first time I've actually fully told this story. Uh, I still haven't quite unpacked it, so I'm sure there's some things that I'll text Marsha and be like, oh, yeah, and. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we could do five podcasts because I only, I mean, I still have like 500,000 questions. <laughs> um, uh, did you have an opportunity to eat? I know it doesn't sound like you were able to eat any of the 
stags that you harvested, but were, did you have an opportunity to try red stag at all? I did actually both in Hungary and in Scotland, we had red stag. Um, I was able to, and actually something very excited about and proud about is I was able to take the heart from my stags nice. and I brought them back and Tom and Lindsay um, had tried heart before. And I think um, had not maybe like they just sliced it without cutting all of the gristle out. Mm. And so it had landed in uh, the sort of heart is gross category. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, no, 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 no. Like give me, give me benefit of the doubt. So we cooked some roe deer backstrap which is like having like white-tailed doe backstrap. It's incredible. It's like if, it, if meat, if butter was a meat, it would be mm-hmm. roe deer. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we had that on the side, but I was like, let me, let me like prepare this. I think, you know, my, my side is like, I'm going to change their minds. Yeah. Um, and I took a lot of time preparing the heart and, and I was telling them, I was like, I don't like to dress it up too much because I think there's something really special and powerful and sacred about eating the heart in as a natural way as you can um, to give respect to the animal and the landscape and all of that. And so cut all of the gristle out, took a lot of time cutting really nice pieces of heart, did a little salt and pepper, a little bit of flour and just like pan fried it. And I instructed actually Tom pan fried it, did it perfect. And I was like, do it really rare. Like don't overcook it. We're gonna like, like medium rare at the absolute cooked most. And he was like, okay. And he did it. And, and Lindsay and um, Tom's sons, I think one is one is 15 and one's 13, um, were also there at the table with us. And everybody was giving me the skeptical eye. And I was like, just try it. Um, and it was a huge hit. And I was really excited about it. And Tom was like, I think we just didn't know how to prepare it. And we'll be doing this with hearts from now on. That's really great. And um, so I did get to eat the heart for my red stag in the Scottish landscape the day we we were able to take him. And um, yeah, it's amazing. I would say uh, red stag is very comparable to elk. Um, I think there's likely ones that can be ruddier and a little gamier than others, depending on how old they were. Um, but I shot a really old, big, ruddy stag and he tasted amazing. So I think it has everything to do with how you take care of it and how you prepare it. Um, and the fact that Scotland, thanks to Lindsay, has a whole guide of best practices on how I, how to hunt red stag, work in conservation around red stag, and process red stag is a pretty lucky thing. I think America could look at what the work she's done and maybe copy it. Yeah. Just now you just need your own Scotland, your little Highland pony, for all of oh. your Wyoming, the game that you take now. Uh, you are not... Wrong, Becca. The day I got back from Scotland, or the, I got back that night, the next morning, um, my partner Jaden's, one of his friends had shot his first elk here in Wyoming. And he shot it in one of the deepest, gnarliest, ugliest hell holes that the <laughs> state has to offer. <laughs> and it's like Boulder Field kind of like thing. Oof. And so it was all, all hands on deck, jet lagged after 22 hours of travel, put on a backpack and hiked in and did an eight mile pack. Yes. That's and hardcore. I was really thinking about a Scottish pony to take out the elk at that point. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, why are we doing this on two legs? This is hell. 
Um, and having come from sea level for the last like nine days, I no longer had any altitude and we were up at 10,500 feet hiking this out and it was, yes, um, Scottish ponies. The other, the, the, the key to the Scottish pony is it's not only stocky is it's short. So you don't have a long ways to put a really heavy load <laughs> off. And that's the whole point yep. of it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, um, this seems like a good place to take a quick break to hear from um, the NWF Outdoors podcast. And we will be right back with my other 499,000 questions. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. All right. Welcome back. <laughs> um, have a lot more questions, but I don't know that we have time to cover them. Um, so I'm going to lead us towards wrapping up and say, is there anything you want to mention that we haven't talked about yet? Mm, no, but I would, I think I would just reiterate um, maybe the importance of looking outside our American silo of conservation and uh, considering that while these countries are wrestling with vastly different problems, I think that maybe the origin is all of the same. And it's a, it's a need for a recoupling with nature and, and a need for a deeper understanding of ecology across the board. Yeah. Becca, any burning questions? No, as someone who... Um has loved Scotland my whole life. I really enjoyed hearing your stories, Jess. And just understanding that um, without balance, like without without the knowledge that you can't, like there's always, there's sort of always a trade-off, right? If you want one thing, you have to be willing to adjust or give up another. And I feel like mm -hmm. um, sort of the model that they're working with over there is, is, it's really interesting to me. I mean, it's quite a different management system for the wildlife itself but just figuring out how to take um, a landscape and turn it back into um, something more similar than it used to be or that it used to be, um, bringing back species, managing some so that you can bring back others. Um, I just think that's also interesting and something that sometimes we forget here in the U.S. because we have such vast you know, public lands and wide open spaces. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, it was, it was certainly a... Uh an eye-opening experience coming from a largely public land state going to a country that had largely private land ownership and a very different way of managing wildlife. It was, um, and still thinking that their system is um, as good, if not better in some ways than ours and vice versa. There's just so much. <laughs> now you know like where I was like oh my god I have to brief this I don't know how to go like this I we packed so much into nine days 
which is also why I think I'm still tired. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, is yeah, I, it was life changing. I was, I was very, very privileged and very humbled to be a part of these, what, you know, the ability to go to Hungary and from then to go to Scotland. And now I'm just looking for a cottage and a horse in Scotland for so international mm. listeners. If you have land for sale there, let me know. <laughs> I will do some sort of service, like, I don't know, clean your house or, um, um, shoe your pony I don't know, in exchange for some room and board yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> just come and drink some scotch with me that was the other thing Ooh, I can do that scotch that was amazing mm. it's fantastic I am curious sorry when I am curious about the um, the sale of the red stag meat. So it sounds, um, is it optional? Like the hunter, not you, <laughs> but a Scottish hunter can keep the meat if they choose to, or they can sell it to the state and then the state distrib or the government distributes it. Yes, correct. Okay. So you can keep it if you would like, and there's, so you lease the hunting rights on an estate. So that's the thing is like, um, you have to like find a place to hunt. And if it's public land, you can leave it's still like a an agreement there so it's not a tag system and then you work with the estate or or with how they want that section of land managed to find out how many you can shoot so like hmm. for instance you know it Lindsay and tom have the lease on bunloin where we were um where i got the first stag at and they took me out under their lease um and they had to be with me and and you know roddy like there, you know, Scotland has very different gun laws. Um, actually, one thing that was really fascinating is that everybody uses silencers and it's super controversial here, but I don't, it makes so much sense hunting wise because you don't, you're not shattering the, I mean, it's still loud, but you're not shattering this sort of sacred environment when you're hunting as much with a silencer on and it doesn't kick like at all. It was amazing. Um, but, but, you know, this, I like there, you know, it wasn't that I had two tags for stags. It was that I was hunting in places and you had a limit of what you could take for the year and what they were looking for. And, and Lindsay and Tom, because they are leasing these places and working with the estate owners are who are figuring this out. Um, and so it was a very different sort of, like, you don't have to pr produce a tag to like sell the meat but you do have to like have it taken care of in a way and you have to document where it came from and how it was taken care of and it has to be in a larder or like a, a cold storage um that is that is set up a certain way and and um they're they're pretty picky about it and it's really cool because there's like a lot of um i would almost say pride yeah there's a lot of pride in taking care of an animal with meat um, in fact, I would say that that's like, that's something where, you know, like how hunters here are really picky about like, oh, like antlers or things like that. Hunters in Scotland, the stalkers in Scotland, like can go down and tell who processed what by how carefully done it was. Hmm. And they can be like, oh, you know, you like hit a bowel here and that wasn't good. Or like this was like, you left too much fat on the side or 
you know, they, they call flat joints in the knees, you know, rather than leaving the knuckles of the knees out when you're taking the ends of the legs off, they leave the flat joint because there's like more coverage. It looks cleaner and not enough, like not like dirt won't get into these. Cause they even use, they use the sinews. They use like, they do stuff with the hooves. They do stuff like they use everything. It's not just the meat that like they sell and do stuff with. It's like the whole animal. Um, and so it was like really cool how particular they were about how you process this animal. And I was like, this is something America could use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's this like pride in, and, and this like cultural pride of taking care of the meat that way. Um, so yeah, like you would like process it. And then you, um, as I understand it, they go to like certified game processors that then sell to restaurants or grocery stores uh, or things like that. And um, I think you get like maybe 200 or 300 pounds, not like weight pounds, but your English pounds yeah. <laughs> uh, for like a full red stag. And I, I don't know how that, what that translates into, unfortunately. Um, but, but it's not a ton. It, the price of meat went way down during COVID um, because people couldn't get places to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, however, now it's climbing back up um, and, and we'll see where it goes from there. But yeah, I was a really very particular about it. And, and the other thing I thought was really, really cool is that Lindsay, because of her work um, in, in and how deeply she's set in the red deer world, as I was coming over, she was like, hey, um, can you make sure that you clean and wash all of your gear if you've been in places that have chronic wasting disease? We don't have it here in Scotland and we're really terrified of getting it. And I was like, absolutely. And I was like, I'll bring boots that like are mostly brand new. Uh, Jaden and I, every animal we shoot, we've tested, they've all come back negative. So if we've ever processed something, it's not been CWD positive. Um, but the fact that she asked that and was like, I was like, hell yeah, like I'll, you know, bleach spray everything down on my boots at least. And then my clothing was mostly, um, thankfully brand new, uh, or had only ever processed CWD negative animals. Um, so another thing of like, if you're thinking of hunting internationally, be really cognizant of what you're around. Cause we could inadvertently be a vector and that would be horrible for a, uh, Island like Scotland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Jess, for, all of this amazing conversation and information and I'm around whenever you want to dig into it. I know I really need to process it. Yeah. I keep trying to figure out how to type talk or write about this. And I'm sort of a, I've got, yeah, word blockage right now. Well, I don't know if it's blockage. It's just like a fire hose. It's yeah. hard to write yeah, with I don't a fire know hose. To... Exactly. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> It just needs a little pressure valve release. Hopefully this podcast was a pressure valve release. <laughs> pressure valve. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys for being on the receiving end of it. Oh, I, I hope it wasn't too ranty. No, it was amazing. It was amazing. And I, I appreciate it. Uh, I am going to transition us to our weekly closer. What have you been aiming for and how did it go? Um, Becca, why don't you kick us off? Oh, man. I wanted to oh. not follow that. Um, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, well, this morning, right when I woke up, 
um, I finally, after like, I think a year of trying to do this, uh, submitted my grad school application. So (gasps) I am all set, uh, and applied for the spring 2022 semester. So that's exciting. That's super exciting. Congratulations. Awesome. Yay. Yeah. Thank you. It took me way too long, but I figured if I didn't do it now, I would literally never do it. So um, I'm excited. It's a, it's a part-time program so I can work while uh, going back to school. That'll be great. And what are are you looking to go back for? Um, uh, Rangeland management. So it's with the university of Idaho Mm -hmm. and yeah, I, uh, it's a lot of money, so I'm kind of freaking out, but <laughs> hopefully my house doesn't burn down while I'm in grad school. Well, your house is insured, <laughs> first off. I also hope your that's house doesn't point. burn down, yes. just in general. <laughs> yeah, just in general. That's a big hope for most people in my life. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we can talk offline more about the scariness of um, taking on debt like that anytime you want. Oh yeah. Congratulations. I'm going to just air my panic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Very exciting. Jess, what have you been aiming for and how did it go? Um, Other than (laughs) the last (laughs) two weeks of your life. Uh, I'll tell you, everything has gone great. What I'm currently aiming for and what I'm really excited about is this evening, uh, a young woman who is from sort of the Great Lakes area is coming into town. She's 17. Um, She came out here when she was 14 or 15, I think, um, to try and get her first mule deer. And we were not able to connect. And so she's coming back and she's youth hunter, uh, has never, never shot a mule deer, never really seen much of it. And uh, we have the next three, four days to go get her on a Wyoming mule deer and, that's what I'm aiming for. Uh, maybe on the next episode, I'll follow up with how we did. But uh, I'm really excited to take her out. And um, she's the daughter of a Minnesota BHA leader. And I'm really excited to sort of be a part of her hunting beginnings um, and take her out and show her Wyoming. That sounds amazing. Uh, gosh, yeah. What have I been aiming for and how did it go? I feel like I've got nothing that compares to any of what this whole podcast has been talking about. My week, I've been aiming to um, sleep through the night. So some weeks are just like that. (laughs) Um, Oh, you were so much more than that. You were at the helm of some really cool stuff happening right now in the hunting world. And whether it's the Hunters and Anglers Climate Report or everything else, you've had a big hand in a lot of this. So. I'm watching you. You're doing big things. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And actually, maybe that is something I should mention because it is a huge deal and we've been working on it for a long time. And Aaron would be really proud of you right now, Jess, for bringing that to the forefront of the conversation. Um, yeah, the national, the NWF Outdoors, which is kind of the sporting arm of the National Wildlife Federation and is where Artemis sits. Um, we just released a climate report um, talking about hunting and fishing and um, the impacts that climate change is having on our seasons and also offers solutions um, about how we can move forward uh, and, and, and work towards keeping what we have. So uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, it's, it's exciting. It's great to 
see, just as you talked about earlier in the podcast, the hunting and fishing communities have never been really great about talking explicitly about climate change. Um, and you can see that starting to change mostly out of necessity, um, <laughs> especially given the impacts that we've experienced over the last year. Uh, it's just becoming more and more obvious. I always think hunters and anglers treat climate change a lot like how the Harry Potter world treats Voldemort in the he who must not be named, but everybody yeah. talks about him anyways. Yeah, that's funny. I think that's true. Yeah, it's a reality, but we don't say his name. Yeah. We allude to him. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, yep. Yeah, but I think if we're going to carry this metaphor out fully, like this summer with um with the, the hot temperature and the low water, it was like the Quidditch match where the Death Eaters showed up. And <laughs> like, exactly. People were like, oh, this is real. Yep. Yep. We're getting there. I Excellent. feel like there's, we should go deeper into this. There is a Harry Potter climate change parallel here, and we could run with it for a while. Just suggestion to NWF. Okay. I feel like there's <laughs> a, a podcast series in there. Like <laughs> right now we're working on sort of in line with the podcast series we did last year with the Monteith shop. We're working on a climate series um, that we'll do this year. Uh, where we sit down with a bunch of different climate scientists and, and talk about wildlife and, and climate change. So that's coming, but 2022, uh, or or maybe we could just have like a side series, um, Harry Potter and climate Harry change. Harry Potter things. and climate change. There's an audience <laughs> for that. I'm certain there's an audience for that. Yeah, I definitely so. just showed some of my, my deep nerdism on that uh, yeah. sort of parallel, but I'm okay with it. I feel like I was right there with you. You might accidentally land in like the top literature podcast of 2021. <laughs> yeah. You just throw people off. Yeah, like, that's how you that's how you bring people in is you start talking about the references they can get. It's true. It's true. Like you wouldn't necessarily anticipate that a hunting podcast would would be about Harry Potter. <laughs> we can cross boundaries and talk to new audiences. How to talk about climate change and literary uh, examples, Tolkien and Harry Potter. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, really that's get into that. <laughs> the silence you hear is like my brain going, huh? Is there something here? <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> All right. Thank you both so much. Um, it was a delight to catch up with you. It has been way too long, and I enjoyed this conversation immensely. I agree. I miss you Thanks. both. I hope I see you soon. <laughs> Same here. Um, and good luck to you both for your hunting seasons. And I can't wait to hear all about them. You too. You too, Marcia. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, to our listeners joining us this week on the Artemis podcast, thank you so much. Enjoy your hunting season as well. And don't forget to send us pictures. We, we love to see how your seasons are going. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Mm-hmm.